All right, so this morning I've got an interesting title. Have you, are these going around? Are you getting one of these? Okay, my title's right at the top, From Me to We. I need to we. It even rhymes, From Me to We, Nehemiah 3. Right? You can't get easier than that. You have to remember that. From Me to We, Nehemiah 3. It's so simple. Two weeks ago, when I last spoke, I was speaking from Nehemiah 2 and how God wants to move us. Do you remember what it was? From here to there. And that was language that I was using to say that God has a preferred future for us. He wants to take us from a place where we are right now, from here, and He wants to move us to a new place called there. And we looked at different practical examples. It might be in a relational space. Maybe your marriage is here. And God is saying, you know what, Paul and Kate, I want you to take your marriage from there, and by God's grace and the Spirit's empowering, I want to move you to there, much happier, more whole place. Maybe it's, and I shared quite vulnerably about my own devotional space and how I'd been speaking about holy discontent as like this thing out there, this holy discontent, let's change Stellenbosch. And God came and whispered into my spirit that the holy discontent he wanted to put his finger on in my life wasn't out there, it was in here. My devotional space, my prayer life. And God's coming and saying, Paul, I want to move you from here and I've got things for you to do. I want to move you to there. You with me? And the the journey from here to there, we've been using Ephesians 2 as a framework. And Ephesians 2 speaks about how God has prepared good works in advance for you to do. That's how we get from here to there, by doing the good works that God has prepared. He has a good work for me to take my marriage from here to there. It's prayer, it's the Holy Spirit, of course, but it's also me doing the good works that God has prepared. He can't come and speak kindly to my wife. That's my job. Now let me ask you this this morning. Have you put any plans in place since two weeks ago? I know the Lord was stirring hearts that morning. I know He was speaking to some of you and saying, hey, there's areas of your life where you're here. I want to move you to there. We spoke about the what and the how and the why and all these different practical ways of putting plans in place. So I want to challenge you this morning. Well, have you? If he's spoken to you, have you? Otilia led prayer so beautifully for us this morning for her first time. It's a joy to have you, Otilia. It really is. And she threw out just this one liner and I was like, that needs to be a preach. And the one one liner was this, God doesn't speak to you so you can hear. He speaks to you so you can obey. preach it's beautiful we're so obsessed with is God speaking can we hear him how do we hear his voice those are all good questions but the better question is when he speaks do we listen do we obey anyway I can't get stuck on these things guys you got to keep someone's got to go like this to me go 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 so the one area this one huge area this morning That God wants to move us, I believe, from here to there is this area of from me to we. From an individual understanding of our gifting, of our world, of our contribution to a place where we see, as Scripture, I believe, clearly points out over and over again, community. God has always intended that we run in community. He never intended that we run alone. So today, turn to Nehemiah 3 with me. 
And this is a strange chapter, and to be honest, when I first got to this as a preacher, it's a pretty terrifying chapter. Like, how in the world am I going to preach Nehemiah 3? It's basically a list of names. That's all it is. It's a list of names of the men and women who built the walls around Jerusalem. And you read it and you're like, God, what is this in the Bible for? What's this here for? And with some prayer and with some thinking and with some application, I think there's profound truths that begin to come out of this chapter in Nehemiah 3 that speak to us thousands of years later. So let me explain to you this picture that you've got in front of you. This is actually how the text works, all right? If you look at, if you look at the sheep gate, which is in the top left-hand corner, do you see it? Eliashab and the priests? That's where chapter 3 starts. And if you go and read chapter 3, you'll see that in a counterclockwise way, it goes systematically around the walls of Jerusalem. That's how it's written. So every single name, if you go and look at those places in the wall of Jerusalem, where the gates are, where this, this tower is or that tower, you'll see that it goes anti-clockwise all the way around. And as I read it now, you'll see what I mean. But it was powerfully helpful for me to see that in visual form, that it's not just random names thrown together. And as we do that, let's remind ourselves what happened that we ended two weeks ago, speaking about this Nehemiah who's come with this plan, with this vision, with this zeal, and then he tells it to the people, and what do the leaders respond? Come, let's rise up. Come, let's build. Let's do this good work. Let's move from here to there. Let's do this work. It's actually something that God has planned and purposed for them to do. Let's read. Nehemiah chapter 3 and verse 1. The other thing that's terrifying is how to pronounce all these names. So just be gracious with me as I go through them. Then Eliashab, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. I'm on the top left corner of the picture. You'll see it there. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel, and next to him... So you'll see now next to him in the little blue strip, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri built. And I'm sure you're getting it now. You're an intelligent bunch. The sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakoz, repaired. And next to, next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Barna, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. So we've gone, have you seen, we've gone from the sheep gates all the way around to the old city gate. Let's skip down to verse 8. So you're going to go down a few on your list. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. You'll see throughout this text, there's a lot of different rulers, half the ruler of this, half the ruler of that, that was repairing. Skip down if you're following in your Bible as well to verse 12, or if you're following behind me. Next to him, Shalem, so this is right next to the valley gate. That's the guy Shalem over there, the valley gate at the bottom sort of center. Shalem, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Isn't that great? 
Go to verse 14, and you'll see this little place on the far right we're going to speak about later called the Dung Gate. This is the sewer of Jerusalem, literally. That's why it's called the Dung Gate. And there's this chap, Mal... How would you say that? Melchijah. I think that's a good way to say it. That's what we're going to call him, right? Melchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of beth Hakerim, repaired the Dung Gate. He built it and set its doors, bolts, and its bars. You get the picture. Skip with me all the way down to verse 27. Now we are just above the water gate. If you're looking at your picture, the big yellow line over there, just to the left of the water gate. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Ima, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shekaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, etc., etc. Verse 31, after him, Melchijah, which is a different Melchijah, he's not the one who built the dung gate, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. You with me so far? I've got five points this morning. The first one is this. God wants to move us from a we to, from a me to a we. God wants to move us from a me to a we. Now I said earlier on that if you had to pray and think about this text, I really believe it would resonate with our context. Well, what is our context? I believe our generation, my generation, younger than me, older than me, I believe that this generation that we're living in is a generation where the context is they deeply desire to make a difference. There's a deep drive in Western society to leave a mark upon the society that we lived. There's a deep mark to have a job that is meaningful, that brings significance. We don't want to just check in and check out of work anymore. We want what we do to count we want to live a life where we can say there's been a contribution and we want to, when we're gone, for us to be able to say, I missed. Someone cares that I'm no longer upon the planet. This is some of what we live in. And I think it's a God thing. I think it's a good thing. And I want you to think about this text in Nehemiah chapter 3 and to think about what an honor it would have been to have your name listed. So we read it and we're like, oh, skip chapter 3, just move on. This is the boring chapter. But imagine if it was your family. Imagine if right there in the, in the, in the records of history of Israel, we're reading 3,000 years later, it said Veer House. Chosart. <laughs> imagine if it said your name. This is an incredible honor when we think about significance, when we think about meaning, when we think about leaving a mark. We're talking about these guys 3,000 years later. This was an Israelite honored list. This was the remnants who had gone back. This was the people who were able to achieve what all the other remnants before them for, for over a hundred years now, as we've been talking about the timeline, hadn't been able to achieve. They couldn't rebuild the walls of, near, of Jerusalem. Yet this generation was able to do it. Talk about something significant with your life. Well, let me ask you a question. If Nehemiah had lived today 
with the kind of pathologies we see repeating in our Western society, if he had gone back full of zeal, full of this idea that God had called him, and God had called him, we've been talking about that, but if he had gone back and Nehemiah on his own had said, I'm going to build the wall. The only, story, the only story we would be reading about Nehemiah this morning was a story of failure. He would not have succeeded if it had been just Nehemiah. I'm concerned that there's this prevalent, overinflated idea of the leader in church circles. Me. There's this idea that they've got to be the celebrity. We've got to push them up. It's only his voice, only her voice that we should hear. It's Nehemiah. It's Nehemiah. We read this text. What's your Western eyes reading this text? Who do you want to be? Oh, Nehemiah, please, Lord. What about the thousand followers building the wall? Oh, no, Lord. Let Kev be that. I want to be Nehemiah. Right? Is this ringing true with anybody? This is how I certainly think, and I'm hoping it's how you think. But if Nehemiah had had this overinflated view of leadership and thought just of himself, or even let's say he was a generous leader and he thought of his leadership team, they still wouldn't have accomplished the work that was needed. I hope you got insurance, Mariette, on that phone. <laughs> The reason I believe that these guys were so significant that we're talking about them 3,000 years later is because they approached this as we, not me. Not me, not my gift, my contribution. I want you to think about the fact that Nehemiah, the leader, Nehemiah, is not mentioned once in this chapter. There's another dude called Nehemiah. He's a different one. It's not the same guy. The emphasis is entirely off the individual, Nehemiah the leader, and it's completely on the community at work. In our prayer meeting on Tuesday night, Johannes brought a beautiful word out of 1 Peter and reminded us as we were praying, I think it was you, out of 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read it for you, verse five, 4 and 5. It says, as you come to him, this is talking about Jesus, so as we come to Jesus, and Jesus was the living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, say that with me, me, myself, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. How much of a house is one living stone? Who wants to live there? We need us living stones. You see, it uses the word priesthood, not priest. We're not just all little priests running off. Now, I think we suffer hugely from this, and I keep on reiterating this. I can't, I don't think I can overstate the need of how much we stuff, suffer from individualitis. If you could call it that, individualitis. Individualitis says this, individuals are the key to changing culture. In this world, it's changed by a man or a woman that's super gifted. And if you aren't super gifted, well, your family going to love you. That's how we treat it, right? That either, the, either some individual stands up and defies the norm of the day, shaking their fist in the air. They give some sermon, some speech, some system which changes everything then because of this super person, everything in the world is different. Elon Musk, 
Steve Jobs, if you want to look in the, in the secular world, or think about Martin Luther King, I have a dream, or Madiba, or William Wilberforce, or, or Billy Graham. And we grow up like this. We grow up being taught and believing that it's only the great individuals like these people. And if only we could be so-and-so, if only we could be Nehemiah, then we could really make a difference. And we forget all about the thousands and thousands of people that made that one person able to shine. I watched a powerful documentary. If you have Netflix, go and Netflix Billy Graham. There's a beautiful hour-long documentary of his life. I just cried as I watched this. It's so profound. His family are sharing and his children and all sorts of other things are going on. I had a real Bates moment in my lounge. <laughs> but what really struck me is, is just the thousands of people supporting him. The unsung heroes that no one ever hears about. But every single crusade that that man did around the world, and God used him powerfully, was underscored by hundreds and hundreds of men and women in the background, enabling that moment for Billy Graham to share the gospel like that. And this is the, this is the take home from this point. Our church, One Hope, the difference that we want to bring in the world is no different to that. If we're going to make a significant difference, it's because we're going to see we rather than any me in the room. Does God raise up leaders? Absolutely. Does God give unique gifts in the room? Absolutely. Not everyone is a businessman. Not everyone is a businesswoman. Not everyone is a lecturer. Not everyone is this. Not everyone is that. God, of course, raises up unique gifts all over the room, but we need them together. It's going to take all of us together serving God to see his kingdom come, to see the walls that are broken down around Stellenbosch rebuilt, to make a mark upon our generation. Do you know if you're a kind of person who sits and you think, I can't make a significant mark, because that's the other side of individualism, right? The other side is, I'm not that great person. I don't have that great gift. I'm a useless contributor. So I'm just going to sit. I hope this is relief for you this morning. As we look at God's word and you see that he never intended you to carry it on your own. It should be healing balm upon us. We should be like, God, pour your oil of healing on me. I don't have to be the superman or the superwoman. It's incredibly healing. This is why we're pressing into other churches so hard as one hope. This is why we speak about Shofar, every nation, the Baptists, the Presbys, Ricky and the guys that have just planted out in Kayamundi, the Antioch guys. These guys are doing incredible things. Why are we talking about them? Why are we not in competition with them? Because if we think we're going to build the wall and it's our little church that's going to build the walls that are needed in Stellenbosch, you're delusional. We need, we, all of us within a community. Let's speak about the second thing out of Nehemiah chapter 3. I think this chapter powerfully shows us that to be the we that God wants us to be, the community that God wants us to be, we need to learn to do what, be willing to do whatever it takes. We need to be willing to do whatever it takes. I want to ask you a question out of this passage. Did anyone see the, a mention of a builder? But what are they doing? Did anyone see mention of an engineer, an architect, a baron to Michelle? They're just not there. 
They're just not there in the text. This is who is there. This is who is in the chapter. High priest. Priests. This is all the ones I found as I went through the chapter. People from far away. When it says the men of Gibeon and Mizpah and Jericho. Jericho is 30 k's away. Gibeon is 10 kilometers away. Mizpah is 20 kilometers away. People from far away, but also people who are close. The men who built right opposite their house. They're right there. We see people who eagerly served, and we see the nobles who would not stoop to serve. We see goldsmiths. We see people making perfume, perfume makers. We see rulers of the district and common people. We see sons. He was the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. And then we see this beautiful little line inserted in there. We see daughters building the wall. We see temple servants and we see Levites. We see gatekeepers and we see merchants. But not one builder. But Lord, it's a building project. I know. That's why you need perfumers. I mean, it doesn't stack up, right? It doesn't make sense. And I think there's some powerful lessons that we can take straight off the back of of when you read this chapter and you see who God used. I think the first lesson is this, that sometimes we serve God in areas that don't benefit us personally. The men of Mizpah and Jericho, they're not even going to live in Jerusalem. They're going back home, 30 kilometers away, and yet they have come to help speaks of church unity, speaks of intercity, it speaks of advance, the network we're part of, who are working all over the world. We have an interest in Nepal, in India. These guys were at our conference last week. It was powerful hearing what God is doing because we contribute. We're there. We're part of it. We haven't sent anyone. They did it not because they would be benefited personally, They're willing to inconvenience themselves, relocating their lives for a season. Whatever it takes, God, I want to do it. Here's a big one for me and for, I think, many, many people in the room. Sometimes we will do things that don't really reflect our primary strengths or passions. Sometimes God calls us to do things. Are you willing These guys, these goldsmiths, these perfume makers were artisans who devoted their lives to detail and fine work. Do you know what a great excuse a goldsmith had not to get his hands all messed up by building a wall? This is my career. Surely conventional wisdom says, Lord, I shouldn't be involved. These are my special hands. My goldsmith making hands. Now we see these men and women doing the burly work of building walls. They were saying, God, my heart is whatever it takes. We know you've called us and we want to be there. We want to do it. Remember, we're talking about willing to do whatever it takes. The third and last thing I want to speak about out of this little section, being willing to do whatever it takes, is that I think both then and now, building has always been considered a man's job. If you phone for the builder or the plumber and a woman rocks up at your door, Tell me you're not surprised, right? And a little bit suspicious. Just the way it is in our society. And it was even more so back then. So this little insertion of this verse that this man was building with his daughters is absolutely beautiful for me. That this is a man's job, but Shalem's daughters are helping out. And the idea here is they are willing to do whatever it takes 
even to play out of position. Guys, you know that there's a setup team that sets up every Sunday for us. Look at this. And they have to go before Jesus and ask him to give them grace because I refuse to get rid of these beautiful wooden <laughs> things. And they've asked me so many times. And do you know why they're doing that? Do you know why they're doing that? Because there might be some new people here this morning who feel completely out of their depth coming into our meeting. Do you know how scary it is? Have you tried going to a new church recently? I know you don't think you're weird, but you are. We all are. When someone's brand new and they walk in, and we're trying to create an environment that says, hey, you're welcome. It's good to have you. We're not just randomly showing up in a school hall and there's junk all over the floor and we throw out a few chairs and sit down, welcome. I guarantee you, most of the people on the setup team don't feel especially called to set up. They don't wake up thinking, this morning I can use my gift of setting out chairs and Paul's wooden things. They wake up thinking, God, I want to serve your body. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. Even if I don't feel like it. You with me? Now, at the same time as I'm speaking about these things, let me tell you that I am passionate about people serving within their gifting. I'm not simply saying, all of you lay down every gift you ever have, pretend you don't have it, let's all just do something we don't like. Romans 12 speaks clearly about how, and and, and other passages about how God grants certain gifts to certain people, gifts of encouragement, gifts of helping, gifts of teaching, gifts of leading, gifts of giving finance. That's a gift, prophecy that we should use these for the sake of the church. But here's the danger that I'm seeing. If we are only willing to serve God along the lines of our gifting, then actually the ministry is more about personal fulfillment than about the kingdom of God and serving His people. Let me say that again. If we're only willing to serve in the areas where we are gifted, then actually you might find that the ministry is more about personal fulfillment than about sacrificial love actually serving the body of Christ. It's more about me than we. Sacrificial love says what needs to be done. How can I help? I know it's not my gifting, but I'm willing. And you know what the crazy thing is? I've found that when someone is willing to do anything, when they operate in their gift... It's powerful because they aren't operating to build themselves a little kingdom and a reputation. Do you know how you tell when someone feels that they've got a certain gift in a certain area and they want to start that ministry in the church and you say not yet? What happens? Usually they're pretty upset. Why? Because you won't let me exercise my gift. It's it's all about me. And we've got to ask God in our hearts that we would be able to switch it to being about community, about what He wants us to do, about sacrificial love. Now, as I, as I shared that number two, let me, let me counterbalance that. I've already started to counterbalance it. I don't want it to get out of, out of whack in our minds. But let me counterbalance it a tiny bit more. And I just want to throw this out, number three. If you are not sure where to build, start opposite your house. If you don't know where to build, start opposite your house. I've spoken about this many times. It remains a deep concern for me that it seems like people are inactive in the kingdom of God, waiting for an airplane across the sky. Johannes, you should be this. Waiting for writing on the wall. 
waiting for some special charismatic experience before they're able to step into serving. So we become inactive, and I want to encourage us to the practical nature of the Word of God, which says, build opposite your house. So let me ask you, what are you concerned about in the church? I bet you you all have at least five criticisms, right, ready on, up your sleeve, right? So do I. I can see them too. What is it you're concerned about? I just want to ask you if maybe God has put that holy discontent in your heart because he wants you to do something about it. And like I said two weeks ago, that something is not to phone the church office. That's not the something he wants you to do. He actually wants you to do something about it. Look at this in verse 29. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. Go down a little bit. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, who we've seen earlier on already, repaired opposite his chamber. So this is way beyond. I hope you hear me when I'm preaching about this. I'm not talking about just a Sunday. I might use set up as an example. But man, there are so many arenas that God wants us to be involved in. In our society, in Serve Stellenbosch, in other organizations that Serve Stellenbosch hasn't endorsed. <gasps> in our workplace, in our marketplace. But Zadok wondered, what part of the wall must I build? I know, I'll just start right here in my front door. I'll just build this part of the wall. That's going to protect me. That's great. When it comes to serving on Sundays, what are your concerns? Maybe you have kids in kids ministry. Maybe you're worried about what they're being taught. Are you worried enough that you'll go and teach? We should be. Maybe you're concerned about, maybe God's gifted you. I mean, maybe you feel like, with, like every time you're in a, in a crowd, you're the person who sees the person who's lonely. And you're able to see, oh, that person looks like they're all alone. Let me go and talk to them. And God's given you that gift. Isn't that wonderful? You can just go and do that. Just start with, with the things that God is birthing in your heart. The, the obvious things. Obvious gifts. If you're not sure what your obvious gifts are, ask people around you. They'll very quickly tell you, hey, I think you're really good at this. I think you're helpful in this area. And so what I'm, what I'm really contending for is I'm trying to demystify this calling of God being this kind of Moses burning bush moment. That does happen occasionally. But I think the vast majority of us learn how to walk in the calling that God has for us simply by looking practically at our lives, by having this attitude that we just spoke about saying, God, I'm willing to do anything. I'm just going to try, God. I'm just going to get involved. I'll try anything. And then we start to look at what God has made us discontent about, holy discontent, and wonder, hey, maybe I could fill some of those gaps. Then we start to think, well, God, how have you gifted me? What's my natural gifting? What am I good at? Maybe I can help. And the biggest question with this one is just to simply say, Lord, I'm a great facilitator of a meeting. In my business world, I'm the guy that everyone turns to and says, hey, won't you take this meeting? And the, the question is just to say, Lord, how do I use that for your kingdom? What does that look like in your kingdom? And it might be that God says, in your business meeting. Brilliant. Or it might be, he says, why don't you offer to host some of the meetings in this kind of context? Or it might be that he says, hey, why don't you go into lecturing? You get my drift. The fourth thing out of Nehemiah chapter 3, and this one's going to sting a little bit, all right? Just like Gerard says when he's going to give you an injection. 
is if everyone goes one kilometer, fewer people will have to go two kilometers. Verse 5, and next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord, capital L. Not some feudal Lord, the Lord. They would not stoop to serve the Lord. I think it's really important to log that some people refused to help. And I think it's really important to log that these people that refused to help were going to have the benefit of living in Jerusalem. So while they refused to build the wall, it was the same wall which would offer them protection. Do you remember where this whole story started? With the guy coming to Nehemiah, the brothers coming back from Jerusalem and Nehemiah's in his plush palace, serving the king wine, the best job a Stellenbosch could ever ask for. That's where we started, right? And the, the, the brothers say to him, Jerusalem is in ruins. The people are in shame. They are despised. Basically, any band which came along could just come through all the gaps, all the gates. It was a city without walls. We could think of many equivalents today. Kayamandi, a city without walls. Anyone can come through any gate. I'm not talking about physical walls, if you're missing me. I think it's important to log that there were those who refused to help, even though they would benefit. And then we see that others... And I believe it's because there were those who refused to help. Others had to do more. They had to go two kilometers because others refused to do one kilometer. So I'll just pull out three very quick examples. If you look through the text, you can write this down, check it out at home. If you look at this guy, Merimoth, you see him on the bottom left of your map. You see the little yellow section bottom left, Merimoth? You'll see him right there. Merimoth is in verse 4. He's actually also the guy who builds the old city gates. I didn't, or that might have been Meshulam. I didn't record it on here. And then further around, you'll see in the middle of all those big names on the right top section, there's that long one, Benjamin Hashad. If you look next to him, who do you find? Merimoth building again. If you look at Meshulam, you'll see him right next to Merimoth, bottom left on the little orange section. Meshulam. And then you'll find him at other places. You'll see him right at the inspection gate. So the top left... Above the sheep gate, there's the inspection gate. There's Meshulam again. And he's, the, he's all over the place. And then you see Hananiah, verse 8. He's also in verse 30 again. And you see these groups or these men. You see the Tekoites building in two places. And if you go through, I could show you more from the text. That there are these people who had to go further because some of them wouldn't do any. Someone once said that a church is like a rugby game. There's 31 people, including the ref running around on a field desperately in need of rest, being watched by 60,000 people def- desperately in need of exercise. <laughs> That's often how churches run, isn't it? A few people carrying all the weight, a few people doing all the praying, a few people doing all the giving, and a whole lot of people just coming along, having the benefit, enjoying being behind the wall, enjoying being in the city, but refusing, like the nobles, to put their hand to the building work. See, I'm convinced that God's plan clearly from Scripture is that He wants no one in a community like that. He wants us to push and push each other, encourage one another, so that not one of us is living in a space where we don't have to serve in any meaningful way. I'm going to take you to 1 Corinthians 12. Turn with me. I was so beautiful this morning. 1 Corinthians 12, that in our um, prayer meeting... 
Ortelia had no idea what I was going to preach on. She, we prayed through the beginning section of 1 Corinthians 12, all about the gifts and all sorts of other different things. And I'm picking up in verse 14 where it speaks about the body of Christ. This is us, the community, right? So let's read together from verse 14. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. I want you to get the humor of this text. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. Right? That would be ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. So the foot says, well, I'm not a hand, so therefore I do not belong to the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in one body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? I mean, it's, I, can, I, I don't know if you can read this. I can read the kind of humor in the text. that He's, he's almost saying it's ridiculous. Imagine this giant eye. It can't even walk around. What does it do? Wobble around. It's got no legs. I mean, it's like he's saying it's, like it's ridiculous. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. If I had more time this morning... This is what I actually titled my message, and I just didn't have time, and the grace of God prevailed so that you don't have to sit here till one. But I was going to title it From Me to We and Many to One. I love how God takes us from an individual into communities, but then how He takes every community, every Gentile. We heard it this morning, and He brings them all back into one one baptism, one spirit, one Christ. Who were you saved into? If you're saved in Shofar, if you're saved in every nation, who were you saved into? No, no, the Holy Spirit of Shofar, don't you know? Don't you know we have a different Holy Spirit here, guys? It's how we treat it. It's how we live. Anyway, another preach, another day. <laughs> Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again can the head to the feet, I have no need of you. That's what we call paralysis. That's what we call disease. That's what we call deformity. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. For the sake of time, jump down to verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And just in case you've missed his metaphor through this chapter, Paul makes sure that you understand that you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. In other words, what I've been writing about is you. It's you. You're the one trying to cut off the ear. You're the one trying to be just the eye. You're the one despising certain parts of the body. Now, here's the, here's the thing I really want to ask you this morning. How does this fit with your current understanding and view of church? Do you believe this? Do I believe this? What do you believe? And guys, I, I'm not, I'm, I really don't want to bring 
judgment this morning. I don't want to bring condemnation in any way, but it must be said because our culture is shifting us more and more and more away from a true belief of what church is. It's saying that we can come, and if you believe that that church is where you and your buddy grab a coffee, and now you're doing church, or you bump into someone in a supermarket and you lay hands on them and pray for them, whatever you do in the supermarket, you're not having church. Yes, you are part of the church, but you are not having church in that moment. And if you believe that you are, you don't know your scriptures. And I'm not saying that as a condemnation. I'm saying that as a fact. You do not know what scripture teaches about a gathered body of churches coming together and what God intends to do with people when they come together. It's not having coffee with your buddy, even if you speak about a book of the Bible. If you believe you can stay at home when you feel like it as Johannes and Ali, beautifully, one of them told me this little phrase, with Pastor Pillow and the Bedside Baptists. And you can stay at home whenever you feel like it and wait for a more convenient time or when it's not raining to look out the, to, to turn your TV on and watch something or turn on YouTube and watch your favorite preacher and when he says something you don't like, you just push the next one. Because how dare he? You can't do that to me. It's awkward. You've got to walk out. It's embarrassing. You've got to pray a cost, Right? And you listen to a bit of Bethel because they like awesome. And like they don't ever make a bad mistake and they don't ever play a wrong note and no one's ever out of key and no one ever gets the rhythm wrong. You've missed it. If that's your idea of church, guys, you've missed it. It's not what the scripture teaches. If you think being part of church is rocking up on a Sunday morning and we should all be grateful that you came. This is honesty, and I'm taking it to the extreme, but there's a whole bunch of gray between this extreme that I'm taking it all the way back to where you might be sitting this morning and saying, I don't think that, but I want God to get behind some of our defenses of what we think, you know, like you've done me a favor to come. You've done me a favor. Guys, it's a complete wrong understanding of, of Scripture. We rock up whatever time we feel is appropriate. As if God is less important than our coffee date or our business meeting where we would make sure we arrived five minutes early. Now let me be very careful here. Some of you with young children. Moms, hello. Dads, hello in the mom's room. I know what it's like on a Sunday morning. I'm not saying we don't have grace for normal situations. I'm speaking about a pattern of our lifestyle. Do we prioritize coming together? Or is it just a, oh, I'll get there when I feel like it. That's, what I'm, that's the heart of what I'm driving at. Some of us, we arrive, we have our coffee, we critically assess the worship team, we critically assess the song selection, I wish they had done this, I wish they had done that. We look around the room, we appreciate the setup, and we, we won't lift a finger to be a part of it. Then we sit like synchronized diving judges with your scores, scoring the preach. How am I doing? How many of you have given me zero so far this morning? He went too long. He was too mean. He didn't use an example that actually spoke into my situation. I've been there. I know exactly what it's like. It's way easier to sit and preach there than here. Way easier. I was the best preacher in the world over there. And then we, we shove off home. And we wait for another Sunday to roll around. We open the windows. We check the weather. Then we take the temperature through the whole family. Who feels like going to church? Who's coming along? And somehow we think we are blessing our kids. And we're blessing our family to take them out of community. And we're taking them out of the lifeblood of what God intended to bring so much into their lives. 
so much blessing in community. Now, I'm not saying you're not a believer. I'm just saying that you're a deceived believer. You're not understanding and reading the Word of God. You're misled. And it's my job when I stand up and preach to preach this to you as well. But yeah, I'm part of One Hope Church. Are, are you really? Biblically? Scripturally, do you believe deep down that that is church? When we don't go one kilometer, a lot of other people have to go two. Some of you are sitting here this morning, and this should be great news for you because you feel lost in obscurity. Like a body part that no one knows about. Let me tell you when people know about that body part, when it goes missing. When it's in crisis. When they rush to the doctor and this part of their body they didn't even know they had is suddenly really sore. That's when they know about that body part. That's what Paul's saying. You think you can get rid of certain parts of the body that you can't see them. They're in your stomach somewhere. He's saying those are the critical ones. Those are the ones we give more honor. God has ordained together. God has ordained we, 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 us, 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 community, community, not I, 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 me, me, me. And if we don't recognize that we are drinking in this milk with our, there's a, there's a quote that says we drink in our culture with our mother's milk. If we don't recognize that we are drinking in this individualitis every single day of our lives, we will not be prepared when it comes to community. I wrote a whole, a whole lot of other rude things, but I need to move on. I'm concerned that there's this modern idea that some of these ideas of church are actually more biblical. Like, you know, the, the, the new believers, they didn't, they didn't need to meet together. Guys, it says they met every day. It says they met in homes. Some of us say, well, let's only meet in homes. We shouldn't be doing this. This is wrong. They also met in Solomon's portico. 3,000 were added in one day. Where are they going to fit in your home? It's not, it's both and, it's homes, it's together, it's all over the place. God wants us together. And then I want to speak to one more group of people around this issue that might be feeling condemned right now. There's some people sitting in our midst, you really hurting, and you in recovery mode. And I just want to, I want to just stop for a moment and say, that's fine. If you come and speak to us, we're going to encourage you to take time to recover. Maybe you're coming from another context and you've been really hurt by leaders. We understand. We know that. So I'm not saying there's no room for us to come and just for a little while let God rehabilitate and rebuild muscle on us. What I'm speaking to this morning is pattern versus season. Some of you are in a season where God wants you to carefully, thoughtfully rest. All right? Others of you are calling it a season, but your season's been a pattern. It's your whole life. You're a non-contributor. You want to come, be part of the walls, be part of the city, but don't you ask me for anything. The last point, number five. Let's end on a lighter one, shall we? It goes right off the back of the third one. Willing to do anything. I think it was the third one. Willing to do anything is this. The servant of all is the greatest of all. This is a very quick point. And it's about this 
man, Melchijah, that we find repairing the dung gate all on his own. Did you notice that? It's all by himself, busy repairing the dung gate. Do you know what the dung gate was? It's the place where, well, think about this. The, the city doesn't have cars. It's got camels and donkeys and sheep and horses. That's the transportation. That's the supermarket. That's everything. And it all comes into the city. And while it's running around in the city having a happy time, you know what it's busy doing all around the city, right? So everyone has to get all that stuff together, and they've got to take it somewhere. And the place that they take it is the dung gate. So you can imagine when the lots went out for who's going to rebuild the dung gate, not a lot of hands went up in the room, right? The servant of all is the greatest of all. And here's this chap that I think is such a beautiful picture of Jesus. Actually, I'll speak about that in a minute. But Melchijah goes in there where it was dirty, where it was smelly. They didn't used to take it five kilometers out the city. It was right there. It would be the sewer. It wasn't a prominent job. It wasn't a visible job. It wasn't a visible ministry that he was doing. But it was vitally important. Because if he didn't rebuild that gate and people couldn't take it out of the city, imagine how long you could have been in that city. A couple of days. And today, most people in our churches, we know the preacher. We know the point leader. We know this person or the life group leader. Man, I think the Lord is wanting to highlight some of the real heroes. People, men and women, who for years and years have been serving in obscurity. No one knows their name. They're building the dung gate all by themselves. Day after day on their knees before Jesus in prayer. For hours and hours and hours, praying, crying out to God, standing on behalf of family members, standing on behalf of their church. And the, the truth is, is that many of them will never get the glory here. But one day, God is going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Exactly what I had for you to do, you did it, man, you did it well. You built that dung gate with everything I wanted you to do. I want to think about the gospel as we close, and we're going to break communion in a minute. I think there's something of Jesus in this Melchijah story in Philippians 2. I've been speaking about it all through the series on Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a type of Jesus who leaves the palace, who leaves the glory of serving the king, this cushy job. And he says, let me go back to the place that's despised. Let me go back to the place that's in ruin. Let me go back to the place of shame is the language that's used around Jerusalem. Let me leave this job, this comfort, and let me go down there. And it sounds exactly like Jesus, right? Let me leave heaven, let me leave my godhood, and let me go back down to earth and press myself into the form of a man and not just live there and die there, but be killed at their hands, be mocked, be tortured, be beaten and killed. And I think exactly the same verse, there's loads of them, but I, I've just been caught since our Philippians series. I've come back again and again and again to this Philippians chapter 2 in the Messiah poem, and it just so perfectly sums up so much of what we see in the scriptures of, of what Jesus was who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with thing a God to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the cross became this giant dung gate 
It became this giant sewer where all of the sins of the world were piled. All of the sins of the world were brought and piled upon Jesus. Our guilt, our shame, our filth poured upon him. And it's extraordinary the lengths that he went to, the depths that he stooped to in order to bring us home to the Father. Unlike the nobles of Tekoa, Jesus said, I am not going to count my godness as something which would make me not come down. I'm coming down despite being God. I will stoop. I will come down. Becoming a servant, even to the point of death, also that we could come into his city. Also that we could be reconciled with God. Jesus made the gate. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. If I think about the impact of Jesus and the gospel upon my life, upon lives that are here in the community, the most amazing thing about Jesus is that he is a servant savior. It's a crazy paradox. He's a servant king. There's this humility about Jesus that no matter what you believe about him, no matter who you follow, you can't deny the incredible humility of Jesus. And because he sees us as valuable, he rescues us by coming down into our dung. He becomes one of us. He gets down so that we can be lifted up. Do you see the beautiful parallels? It's just Christ comes down, we get lifted up. Christ dies, we live. Christ is beaten so that we may live in freedom. And that's why we get involved. That's why we become a community that's not obsessed with me and we move instead to we. That's why we begin to serve, even outside of our gifts. and why, or Everything I've been speaking about today, that's why, because when we see the servant-heartedness of Jesus, we say, well, you're my Jesus. I can see what you've done for me, and so therefore I respond in service. It's not to earn anything. It's not to make him happy with us. It's because we've seen what he's done, and we say, I will be like you. Jesus, make me like you. And we're thinking glory. Jesus, make me like you. As we're worshiping, we sing those words. Make me like you, Jesus. I want to be like you, Jesus. Let me do miracles. Let me make bread into five for 5,000 people. I want all that stuff. The hallmark of Jesus Christ was not miracles. It was servanthood. It was humility. That was his crowning act. So the next time that you're in worship and you're tempted to cry out, make me like you, Jesus, be careful. Be very careful. What we're asking for is servanthood, imprisonment, enslavement to this king who loves us. Can we break bread together? Uh, Bernie, and the, Bernie and the bandits, you guys are great. Thank you for serving us week in, week out. I want to pray for three things this morning. I'm going to be a little bit bold and ask you that if you're in one of these categories, I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to pray for you. If you're too embarrassed to stand, I understand that that's okay. Still stand. Uh, you'll be fine. I'd like to pray for some of us who are struggling with this individualitis. If as I'm preaching this morning, something in your heart is saying, Lord, that's me. That's me. I'm struggling with it. I think it will be many, many of us this morning. I want to pray a prayer of repentance before we come to communion.
Can we do that? So if that's you, if you're struggling with this individualitis and you're really saying, God, I want to pour out into your kingdom, but it just feels like so often it's about me, I want to invite you to stand with me. I want to pray for a second group of people. You don't have to do anything if this is you, just in your heart, just respond. I'd like to pray for you if you felt that your contribution, maybe even your life, hasn't mattered so far. You felt that you're not significant. The work you've been doing is overlooked. You look at other people and you see their lives and you think you want to be like them and you're disappointed with your life. And you're thinking, all I've managed to do is work here among the dung. I'm going to pray this morning that you would experience the freedom and approval of your Father. And then there's one last group of people I want to pray for. And that's the group of people who do not know this King. If you don't know Him and you want to know Him, what I've been explaining out of Philippians and how He came down and how He rescued us, we can tell you more about that. But I want to pray for you. If you've got a stirring in your heart and you say, Lord, that's me. I don't know you, but I want to follow you with my life. I want to ask you just in your heart to lift your hand as high as you can in your heart. And we're going to pray for you as well. So, Father, this morning, as we come as a body and we lift our hands, and I stand as well, Father. I stand too with these men and women who've been brave enough to stand this morning and say, God, that our lives so often want to revolve around us and ourselves and our selfish motives and our selfish needs. Lord, I want to thank you that their standing is a sign of repentance before you. We say we're so sorry, God. We're so sorry when we've made it about us instead of about you. Just for 30 seconds, you know what is in your mind. Can you just in your hearts articulate that to God? Just a prayer of repentance before your Father. What I'm going to do is I'm actually the second group of people. If you felt like your contribution is worthless, you feel like that body part that no one knows about, talks about, ever sees, you feel like you don't contribute. At the end of this meeting, I'm going to ask some of our leaders, life group leaders, deacons, elders, why don't you just come up to the front and be available? And if that's you, just come and make yourself known and say, I need some prayer. And I just believe the Father wants to speak healing over you and the same for those of you if there's anyone who wants to give their life to Christ come and see me love to just walk that road with you and pray pray with you this morning and explain what it is that he wants to do can we sing a song and let's take communion as we remember what Christ has done for us this morning